Good morning. 3CR Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to the elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. My name is Jacob and it's a pleasure to be back in the studio um, we've had a little summer break, uh, but I'm, I'm so pleased to be back on the mic uh, bringing you the Monday news. We've got a very exciting show coming up for you today. Um, we've got a few guests. So at 7.25, we're going to be bringing in Karen Bryant, who is the CEO of the Midsummer Festival, which is Victoria's premier queer arts and culture festival. So that's running from January 23rd to February 13th. Um, and Karen's going to be giving us the rundown of all of the exciting events that we have to look forward to. Um, after that, we're going to be having a chat with Chris Breens from the Refugee Action Collective Victoria. Um, now, as we know, the Novak Djokovic saga has brought a lot of renewed attention to the plight of refugees down here in Melbourne at the, the Park Hotel prisons. Um, so we're going to be hearing a bit of an update from Chris about how all of the detained refugees are doing um, and what's happening in that movement at the moment. And then at 8 o'clock, um, we're going to be hearing from Professor from ANU, Dr. Kirill Nurjanov, um, and he's going to be giving us a bit of a rundown of what's happening in Kazakhstan. So you may have heard there's been some protests um, earlier this month over rising petrol prices, um, but that's really only the, the start of the story. There's a lot to unpack there, and I feel like not a lot of us um, have heard from the mainstream media what's going on, and I don't think many Australians would actually know um, where Kazakhstan is. So that should be a really interesting interview. That one's coming up at 8 o'clock. Um, so stay tuned. You're on 3CR, 855 AM on the dial. Um, or perhaps you're listening online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. We'll be right back after this community service announcement. We are Victorians. We know fire. We know bushfires can be devastating, that they change direction in seconds and move faster than anyone can run. But extreme fire danger days are rare. So before you travel, check the fire danger rating. And if it's extreme or above, don't travel to those areas. If you're already there, leave. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to emergency.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Got questions about COVID-19? Drummond Street Services, Queer Space and Queer Space Youth have answers. The team at Drummond Street has partnered with community organisations across Victoria to hear from multicultural LGBTIQ plus people about their COVID-19 questions and concerns. 
You can now access fact sheets and videos that directly address community concerns about COVID-19 and provide accurate information about vaccines and keeping safe during COVID. Head to cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID to find out more and access resources in languages including Arabic, Mandarin, Farsi, Tamil, French, Spanish, Japanese, Malay, plus English and Easy English. That's cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID. Drummond Street Services, Queer Space and Queer Space Youth, keeping multicultural LGBTIQ plus community safe during COVID. A 3CR supporter. Good morning, you're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob today. We're going to jump to a song now. Uh, now, long-time listeners of the show may know I am a bit of a fan of a bit of indie pop, and this song is no exception. This one's called Don't Call Me by Cat Edwards.
That was Don't Call Me by Cat Edwards. You're on 3CR Breakfast. Up next, we're going to be hearing from artist and writer Matt Chun, who joined Priya to speak about his new self-published picture book, Do You Ever Wonder? And processes and politics of creating against colonization in the literary sphere in so-called Australia. Take a look. And we are joined now by artist and writer Matt Chun, who is joining us to speak about his new self-published picture book, Do You Ever Wonder?, and some of the processes and politics of creating against colonization in the literary sphere in so-called Australia. So welcome, Matt. Hey, thank you so much. This is really lovely. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to talk to you about this book. Um, I've already hyped it up heaps in the introduction. But um, before we jump into this, can you um, self-introduce in a little bit more detail and tell us how you got into illustration and writing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, well, I'm an artist and writer. Um, I'm speaking to you from Ewanland, where I live. Um, yeah, I'm just up on the headland now watching dolphins in the bay. It's a beautiful morning. Um, and, yeah, I think, like, drawing is something that I've always done, you know, from childhood. It's my earliest memory. So there's no, uh, I guess, particular um, crucial moment. But in terms of publishing, um, yeah, I was approached by a commissioning editor about five years ago. Um, she'd come across my work and asked me to make a picture book, which was, yeah, a process that I just really enjoyed, so we kept doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of fell sideways into the world of books, I guess, um, yeah, I wish I had a more interesting origin story, but that's it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, well, I mean, it makes sense that you've been creating forever, but it it also is just amazing how well your art has translated into into this form because, um, you know, having having looked, in, in particular, like one, one of your books that I've looked at is the collaboration with Amy McGuire at Daybreak. And it's just, it's just really beautiful, like looking at, yeah, the, the, the sort of um, visual storytelling that you're able to do. Um, and you yeah, know, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean that's why you're that's why you're here today because you've um, you've published your newest <clears throat> picture book. Do you ever wonder? And that was self-published this month. And I was really struck by some of the visual reflections and also the truth-telling that you engage in in the book. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the process of creating the work? You know, why did you choose the the vignettes that you that you include in the book, and why now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, do you ever wonder? Um, it's really just like a, a little compilation of words and picture sequences, um, I guess, extracted from my sketchbooks during 2020. Um, and, yeah, last year I was in COVID lockdown in Vancouver um, for most of that year. And, you know, extremely fortunate and privileged to be comfortable and busy with some great projects. But, um, yeah, I, I did have a lot of time to fill sketchbooks. And because I'd been working, I guess, within the picture book world for a few years, I was just thinking about and, and uh, you know, experimenting with that as a form. And I think there's something really um, kind of disarming maybe about taking that kind of simple palette of words and pictures um, and using these kind of soft, gentle watercolours to confront horrifying subjects like, you know, colonialism, uh, policing, military, um, you know, it's, it's all empire, right? Mm. So... I think having published with a publisher um, over the last few years, I was really just curious about the process of self-publishing. You know, um, maybe it seems like a step backwards, but I was just really excited by um, self-publishing as a kind of, you know, way into this sort of unfiltered uh, solo project. Um, 
So truth-telling, yeah, I, I guess that's something that as uh, a settler I definitely see as an obligation, right? Um, and particularly as someone who makes objects for people to look at. Um, and I don't always get it right, but I've been thinking about the fact that everything, you know, settlers do on stolen land um, is inherently political, right? So, like, every time we speak, um, even if this conversation was just about the weather or something, that's kind of political speech. Um, and as an artist, you know, I can step outside and draw something, um, you know, maybe seemingly apolitical, like a tree or a landscape. Um, but within the framework of empire, you know, in an ongoing colony on stolen land, um, even those kind of innocuous subjects, I think, are inherently political. So that's kind of the imperative, right? Um, and I think there's there's probably a range of solutions to that. But for me personally, um, I think the solution is just to name things um, and to be as articulate as possible about what's really going on. Yeah. I mean, the the, the process of, of creating art, um, you know, in, in, a, in a settler colonial context, you're, you're capturing images on a page and presenting them in a decontextualized kind of manner sort of abstracts you away from responsibility with engaging with these things. And that's clearly mm. something that you're pushing back against in, um, in Do You Ever Wonder? And um, I really loved the segment Imagine, uh, Imagine <clears throat> Desecrations. I mean, I loved all mm. of them, but this one in particular with the way that you've used um, a series of sketches of uh, police defending the Captain Cook statue in Sydney's Hyde Park during the Black Lives Matter rallies uh, to present a creative dismantling of colonial symbolism. Um, and I was wondering what role you see for art in getting audiences to engage in tangible challenges to settler colonialism, because there's this aesthetic side, but also mm -hmm. it's definitely very clearly linked to a practice of um, anti-colonialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look, I have to give a shout-out to the online platform Runway Journal. Um, that's where that sequence you're talking about was first published. Um, and you're probably familiar with them. They're a great platform, and they release issues, I guess, of writing about art and art about art. So I've written for them a couple of times, um, you know, about public monuments and the way that Empire, uh, you know, I guess inserts itself into public space. Um, yeah, so Imagine Desecrations, yeah, that was made during... Um, the Black Lives Matter protest in Hyde Park um, and, you know, following that horrific murder of George Floyd, you'll remember there was this kind of energy around toppling and defacing monuments through um, the American continent and in Europe too. Um, there was that amazing footage of um, John Colston being thrown into the sea. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, that moment when the cops were deployed to surround James Cook um, in Hyde Park, uh, it was just such a clear sort of reassertion of white supremacism, right, and the colonial, um, I guess, occupation of public space. And this, you know, this sort of posture that nothing like that would ever happen here um, in so-called Australia. Um, you know, and then Scott Morrison was out there making the argument that Australia is, like, in some way, you know, distinct from the U.S., you know, that we don't have police violence, that we never had slavery, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, look, I'm, I'm honestly... Uh, I try to be careful not to overstate the power of art. You know, I think art can be a valuable um, reflection of society. It, it's, you know, obviously the way that I communicate, it's, it's a, um, a useful tool for me. Um, and I think it can change people's minds. But in terms of being 
like an agent of change. Um, I'm just wary that, you know, artists, uh, we often give ourselves too much credit. <laughs> so, like, I really see myself as playing a supporting role, right, um, particularly uh, in support of, um, you know, activists who are on the street, particularly Indigenous activists who are doing the real work. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and when you when you think about um, art that does try to be sort of cringily, um, you know, substituting actual, like, physical political action um, mm. in terms of things like, you know, there's, there's, um, there's We Are Australian or I'm Australian um, posters that sort mm. of were put up around, um, around NARM, um, for example, where it's like, okay, like there's, there's a political statement in there, but at the same time, it's, it becomes sort of for consumption rather than mm. a provocation mm. to action. Um, so I appreciate yeah. Yeah, your reflections. No, no, that, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, and I, I'm not saying that I always get it right, but, you know, that we do have to consider all those things, you know, like how we, how we aestheticize um, a political subject, for example, like you, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, turning to, to the um, question of self-publishing, which I know is um, an interesting thing for, for you to explore, as you uh, mentioned earlier, but... I would say at least four out of the five segments in the book might have gotten you into some difficult conversations with most publishers, um, <laughs> you know, in terms of is nothing sacred anymore, the police, the yeah. Anzacs. Um, and it, is, it, it happens to be a Remembrance Day today. Um, so I know that you've been speaking up for some time about colonialism and uh, issues with this in the Australian publishing industry, particularly when it comes to organizations who are progressive except for Palestine. So could you speak to some of your experiences of the political landscape of publishing here when you're creating work or, you know, when others are creating work that actively challenges colonialism? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think that Palestine is the clearest of moral lines, right? Um, and obviously there are too many Australian publishers uh, on the wrong side of that issue. Um, you know, and, and I, I think, like, the fact that these aggressively kind of anti-Palestinian platforms, like, um, you know, the Saturday paper and Black Ink book, have, you know, managed to ingratiate themselves into progressive spaces. Um, and I think it generally understood here to be a good alternative, you know. Um, it's just really an indictment on Australian media in general, you know, not just publishing. Um, and I think Palestine is particularly important for all of us because, you know, all the things that we should care about on the left, they're really kind of condensed and exemplified um, within the movement for Palestine. So it's a great litmus test for progressivism and really exposes the authenticity of, um, you know, an organization's kind of pretense for solidarity. So, yeah, that's, um, you know, if, if you want to uh, a, a sort of test how genuine an organization's progressivism is, I think just say, um, say the word Palestine yeah. <laughs> and, like, see if their pupils dilate, right? Yeah. But obviously, um, yeah, like, even, even less insidious publishers um, are still operating within a framework of capitalism, right? So there's always going to be a degree of compromise. Um, and, you know, nobody can claim to be morally absolute when working within that framework. It's, it's, um, it's really a case-by-case -case, uh, kind of exploration. But, you know, having said that, the people I do work with within publishing are genuinely progressive and they're genuine allies. So self-publishing is no shade to the people that I've worked with. I find those relationships really um, valuable and enriching. 
Um, and you mentioned Daybreak, right, with Amy McGuire. Mm-hmm. So that was a book made with a publisher and was really, um, yeah, really uncompromising in the way that it critiqued Australia Day and Anzac Day. Um, and I'm really impressed with my publisher for getting that one to print. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in general, you're absolutely right. Like, when I work with a publisher, an idea needs to be approved by an acquisitions team and, um, I, I guess, needs to be approved as, like, safely marketable, right? Um, and I will keep working within that world, but I'm interested in, in slowly kind of putting together maybe a little series of self-published books as a side project because, yeah, there's just, like, so much seditious potential in in that kind of... Um, complete lack of oversight. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's also just an enjoyable process, right? Like, it, it's it's challenging doing everything myself and honestly, like, really has taught me to appreciate the amazing work that my regular editor and my designer um, have done for me in the past. Yeah, but it's also, um, you know, one of those incredibly powerful ways to kind of break through a lot of... Because a lot of what we see, especially with more progressive... Um, organizations that are progressive except for Palestine is not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, um, the demonization of, of Palestinians as we see in, in a lot of mainstream media, but it's just the silence. And I think, you know, Absolutely. breaking yeah. through those silences, you know, in some, in some instances through self-publishing, in some instances through, you know, pushing media organizations to actively engage with these is, is so is such an important part of this. And I, and I know that right now there's a process going on with the, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival where, yeah. you know, that just thinking about creative spaces where these conversations are happening right now. Um, so, you know, looking towards wrapping up, um, I just wanted to know who you are reading right now and whose work inspires and challenges you both inside and outside the literary sphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Mostly I'm, I read comics <laughs> at the nice. moment. So my 10-year-old son and I um, have, uh, you know, it's been our sort of biggest expense over lockdown is, is collecting comics. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just like a really complex and experimental and I think genuinely radical form in, in a way that I think the fine art world often, um, you know, can fail to be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying growing my comics collection um, yeah, for the sake of... Um, uh, you know, watching the time, I'll give a shout out to Lee Lai. Um, have you read? Oh, Lee is uh, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's that's one that I've really enjoyed. You know, just this really gorgeous storytelling and this kind of um, you know subtle uh, like excavation of a relationship. Just really well done. Um, in terms of who inspires and challenges me, I mean, you've mentioned Amy McGuire, so I'll um, yeah, I'll I'll just give a shout out to Amy's Substack um, called Present. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've talked about the limitations of um, journalism. And I think, you know, one real solution is following independent journalists. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely point people towards that. Um, also, um, you know, just because I've been watching her book launch um, vicariously through social media, mm-hmm. um, Chelsea Wadigo, who I, I think you've mentioned before, right? Yeah. she's uh, On your show. She's just amazing. And Another Day in the Colony is... It's a must read. Yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, Chelsea's someone who um, I, I find really challenging and enriching, um, particularly in her writing um, on, you know, black power and joy. Um, yeah, yeah, so 
Yeah, I mean, I could go on. <laughs> There's so many inspiring people. No, but that is that is a great start. And um, thank you so much for you know speaking with us about about your process of creating, about these really important conversations in publishing. And just to finish up, where can people grab a copy of Do You Ever Wonder? Oh, yeah, look, well, so the best place is from my website. That's um, Um You can connect with me on Instagram, of course. Um, and, yeah, that's where I, I kind of talk about my process and, uh, and talk about new projects. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's been a joy to speak to you, and all the best with getting the book out into the world. Thank you so much. Lovely talking to you. That was artist and writer Matt Chun, who spoke to Priya about his new self-published picture book, Do You Ever Wonder? And if you're interested in reading some of Matt's work, you can check out his website, www.mattchun, that's M-A-T-T-C-H-U-N.com. And we are on 3CR Breakfast. Up next, we've got a very exciting interview. As some of you may know, Victoria's premier queer arts and culture festival, the Midsummer Festival, is just around the corner with a sensational lineup of queer events um, through theatre, through art, happening from January 23rd to February 13th. And joining us now to tell us all about it is the CEO of Midsummer. Karen Bryant. Karen, welcome to the show. So let's start off. Briefly tell us about you and your involvement in the Midsummer Festival. Sure. Um, so I'm the Chief Executive of Midsummer. Um, I've been with the festival for about five years. Um, and uh, as you mentioned before, Midsummer is the LGBTIQ Arts and Culture Festival. We're also actually a year-round organisation. We do a whole lot of other work throughout the year, but we're very much best known for the three weeks of the year in summer when we put on a huge amount of, of arts events um, across the little art forms um, and quite a few big outdoor events as well. Amazing. And for those audience members who maybe haven't heard of Midsummer, could you tell us a bit about um, some of the history and the context behind it? around 34 years, um, so you know, it's been around quite a long time. Um, it, uh, it's a festival that both develops, um, so we're going to do a lot of work throughout the year in um, building capacity, particularly looking at those parts of our communities whose voices and stories are not being heard, um, and uh, empowering those communities to be able to tell their own stories creatively. Um, and, you know, it, it has about upwards of... 300, 250 events a year, um, has audiences that go up to 280,000 a year. So it's actually, um, uh, you know, rather than being a niche festival, it's actually one of the largest attended festivals um, in, in Victoria. It's so exciting. And, and for me, as a Melbourne queer, I will be honest, I have not attended Midsummer yet, but I'm so looking forward to it. What events should I head towards this year? Sure. Well, look, I guess if I start by saying that there is usually something for everyone. <coughs> Sorry, but Monday morning early, a bit of a frog in the throat. <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, so it, it is one of those festivals where we say, like, get online, have a look at all the different events. But we do have a number of sort of big outdoor events that always are incredibly popular. Um, our open event on the 23rd of January is Carnival, Midsummer Carnival, and that is an event that is very much loved on the queer calendar each year. It's in Alexandra Gardens. It has multiple stages, not, you know, um, big outdoor space, 
So people can just wander around, they can set themselves up with a picnic, they can uh, listen to, you know, great music and comedy. Um, we also have the Pride March, which um, is on the 6th of February, which is just a really important uh, part of the community celebrations every year. Um, and then this year we have Melbourne Pride in uh, Smith and Gertrude Street um, and Fitzroy, um, which is uh, a real, it's, it's actually commemorating the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. Um, and again, multiple stages, stalls, really bringing like that street precinct to life. Yeah, it sounds phenomenal. I'm so excited to attend. And I'm sure trying to run a, a festival during a pandemic comes with some challenges. Did you want to enlighten us um, on some of the challenges trying to organise this year? Yeah, well, actually, it's a challenge now, as we all know, I've been for a number of years. Mm. It's, um, the first thing has been having to always just plan multiple versions of everything. Um, I think every year, instead of one festival, I've planned about 100 every year. Um, <laughs> this year, um, it's... You know, we're getting really strong. We work very, very closely with government representatives from both um, the events and arts, but also health departments around making sure that everything that we do not only meets um, all of the, re the restrictions, but also we go above and beyond to make sure that the events are safe. Um, outdoor events, uh, as I think most people are hearing now, are considered to be, um, you know, it's the safest space for us to be at the moment is outdoors. Um, we make sure that all of our sites are very open, um, that um, obviously for the largest events, people will be asked to wear masks um, when they're not seated. Um, there's you know, lots of uh, ways to make sure that people are socially distanced. Um, for the events that are indoors, uh, you know, again, theatres and visual arts spaces are, um, have been shown to be safe. As long as people are wearing masks, they obviously um, do need to be vaccinated. Um, they need to be seated. Um, and so we've worked really, really closely to, to make sure that uh, our events can go ahead in a safe manner. Of course. I'm sure there's many provisions in place to keep us all safe and well. And I'm sure this festival will come at a time when a lot of us are feeling quite isolated from our communities after years of lockdowns and, um, and the pandemic and things. Why do you think this festival is important for Melbourne's LGBTQIA plus community? Yeah, well, the festival is really important in any year. Um, you know, the, the, our community is still um, overrepresented in uh, mental health. Um, there's still a lot of challenges in terms of discrimination that people do still fear, face in their daily lives. Um, and you know, I mean, there was research recently that showed that 50% of uh, members of our communities in Victoria still don't feel that they could be out at work, for example. And so that, that, that visibility and the sharing of personal stories is really important. Um, there's also still, you know, a high level of prejudice out there in the community. And, and, um, and this festival is a festival that really uh, allows all of our communities to come together and share their stories and make personal connections, um, both in a broader sense, but also in, enhance and strengthen um, the feeling of connectedness to communities. This year, I think, is... Uh, is more important than ever. Um, certainly the pandemic has um, reawakened a lot of feelings of past trauma in members of our communities, as it has in all communities. Um, but because isolation is a very big part of the, the experience of a lot of LG, LGBTIQ community members at some points in their life, whether that's from family, friends, workplaces. Um, and, you know, so the coming together and of community 
um, whether that's in a venue that people feel safe or whether it's just uh, the gathering of, of members of our communities together is absolutely vital. And, and so, you know, a, a festival such as Midsummer um, is very well placed to assist people in their feelings of, of togetherness. I couldn't agree more. I think community and connectedness and, and celebration of our identities is so important um, this year and obviously every year. So where can we go to find out some more information about the festival? Sure. Well, the best place is our website, um, which is Midsummer, and it's mid as summer with M-I-D-S-U-M-M-A <laughs> in terms of the spelling, mm. midsummer.org.au. Um, and uh, there's a tab there that just says what's on, and you can see uh, information on all of our events. Um, and so we really encourage people to go online, have a look, uh, you know, jump the things that jump out to them, but also, you know, take a bit of a punt, that's what festivals are for, go and see something or participate in something that maybe you wouldn't otherwise, uh, you know, see something new, hear something new. Of course, so many great events to look forward to. Karen, thanks for joining us on 3CR. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you very much. Awesome. So that was Karen Bryant, uh, the CEO of Midsummer Festival. You're on 3CR Brecky. We'll be right back after this. Got questions about COVID-19? Drummond Street Services, Queer Space and Queer Space Youth have answers. The team at Drummond Street has partnered with community organisations across Victoria to hear from multicultural LGBTIQ plus people about their COVID-19 questions and concerns. You can now access back sheets and videos that directly address community concerns about COVID-19 and provide accurate information about vaccines and keeping safe during COVID. Head to cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID to find out more and access resources in languages including Arabic, Mandarin, Farsi, Tamil, French, Spanish, Japanese, Malay, plus English and Easy English. That's cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID. Drummond Street Services. Queer Space and Queer Space Youth, keeping multicultural LGBTIQ plus community safe during COVID. A 3CR supporter. You're back on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob this morning. We just had a fantastic interview with Karen Bryant, who is the CEO of Midsummer. I'm so excited. There's so many amazing queer events to attend. Um, so that's happening this January the 23rd to February 13th. And if you want to check it out, you can head to the website Midsummer. That's M-I-D-S-U-M-M-A. And up next, we're going to be playing a song from a performer who is actually taking part in the Midsummer Festival. So this is a local queer artist, um, James Crothers, and this is their song, Everything.
security, cost security, technology's glitch, crisis, operations down, find the circuit, decipher all of these tricks, tell me why do I, I exist, is this some kind of quick fix, now I'm artificial, it's official, no big issue when you're the, the digital. You're on 3CR Breakfast. That was Everything by James Crothers. And if you like that, you can check them out at the Midsummer Festival coming up this January and February. Now, up next, the Novak Djokovic visa saga has brought renewed attention to the plight of refugees detained at the Park Hotel in Carlton, some of whom who have been indefinitely detained for nine years, the product of Australia's infamously cruel immigration policies and the Minister's indifference towards human rights. Joining us now is a spokesperson for the Refugee Action Collective, Chris Breens. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. And for our listeners who haven't heard of RACVIC, tell us a bit about the organisation and what some of your key objectives are. Uh, The Refugee Action Collective was formed in 2000. I've been involved about 2010. We're a grassroots organisation trying to change government's refugee policy. Uh, Anyone can get involved. We meet every Monday night. The Monday night meeting we've got coming up is by uh, Zoom. And uh, our main aim is, as I said, to change refugee policy, so to end mandatory detention, to free the Medivac refugees in the Park Hotel around Australia, to end offshore processing, to stop boat turnbacks and the whole suite of deterrent measures, um, you know, that are targeting refugees. Certainly some really valuable objectives there. 
now, in the news recently, as you would know, Djokovic was actually uh, staying in the, the same hotel as some of the refugees. He's since come and gone. What is the general feeling right now for both the activists and the refugees who are still detained? Um, <clears throat> what's the general feeling? Uh, I mean, the, the, the Djokovic decision, I think, is a bit of a farce. Um, you know, he was deported on um, health and good order grounds, uh, but I don't think that, you know, passes the, the pub test. Um, when you've got Omicron cases skyrocketing in Australia because Morrison's let it rip, when Morrison has changed the close <coughs> contact definition, and so, you know, COVID even COVID positive workers uh, can work, but, you know, one uh, COVID negative tennis player can't play tennis. It's, a, it's somewhat um, absurd. And in terms of a threat to public health, it's the Morrison government, which is a threat to uh, public health. They have destroyed the health of refugees. Um, I mean, so Djokovic inadvertently drew attention to the plight of the refugees in the um, uh, Park Hotel. Uh, he's gone. He'll go back to Serbia. They're still detained. Um, they've been there, as you said, for over nine years. Uh, they, they are despairing at that, um, situation. I mean, they're still fighting in extraordinary circumstances every day. They're still having protests every day. Uh, but many of the, the people in that circumstance have been broken by the indefinite, the arbitrary, uh, nature of it. I mean, I guess what happened to Djokovic and the minister intervening for political reasons is what's happened to the refugees um, over a long uh, period of time. So we had a, a snap protest uh, yesterday. Um, we'll have a, another action at the, the tennis this morning saying that, you know, torturing refugees isn't a game, uh, that they need to be uh, released um, and, you know, we will keep fighting to to free the refugees. You know, over half of the Medivac refugees have been released. Uh, we think that we can win the release of uh, the remainder, but it is it is a form of torture. Like, if you look at people like Adnan and, and Mehdi, who came when they were 15 and 16 and are now 23 and 24, their whole lives have been... Um, their youth has been stolen. They've spent more than a third of their lives in detention... Uh, the, you know, the, the government has destroyed their youth. It is the, the Morrison government which is a threat to, you know, health and good order. Absolutely, and it's, it's horrifying to think just how long they've been indefinitely detained, and as you described, it is a slow form of torture. Um, but I think there's been some wins in recent times. As you said, there were some uh, refugees who were released. What have been some of the other main wins in recent times? Um, that probably has been the, the, the main one. Um, I mean, the, the refugee campaign has been a long, hard um, battle. There have been wins along the way. Uh, so there was the, the, the campaign around Baby Asher and the Stay campaign, uh, which involved the union blockade of Lady Salento Hospital in Brisbane when doctors and nurses refused to uh, return her to uh, Nauru. Uh, and that campaign won. Uh, then later there was the um, Kids Off All Off campaign to get children and uh, families off Nauru. Uh, teachers actually took stop work action for that. I was one of them. Um, <clears throat> that succeeded. 
I mean, there's been a series of halfway wins along the way. Uh, so the fact that the medevac refugees are here at all is because of the medevac uh, legislation. And actually, the, the reason that the medevac refugees are still detained is because of the political vindictiveness of the Morrison government. So we will, the movement was strong enough to win that legislation, but not to end offshore processing and bring them here. And originally, when refugees started coming to Australia via the courts for medical treatment, for some you know horror stories, uh, they were allowed into the community, and those people are still in the community. It was when Morrison lost the vote on Parliament for the Medivac legislation, and he was determined to overturn it. At that point, about a month later in February, he started locking up the people who came, who originally told they were going, they'd be allowed to be free, and it was to try and. Um, uh, suggest that there's something wrong, that they're criminals, that something like this. And so it is that vindictiveness uh, which has kept uh, kept people inside. So the the campaigning does work, but we need a, a bigger movement, a stronger movement uh, to, you know, to, <coughs> to not just to free the Medivac refugees, to, but to ensure that it never happens again, to ensure that people are never sent offshore. It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't need to happen. It's definitely been a long, hard slog um, that's probably been a product of both um, the Labor and the Liberal Party's policies over the past 10 years. And with the federal election coming up later this year, do you think voter opinion might influence any changes in policy by either of the major parties? Um, I think that uh, refugees is unlikely in this election to be a big uh, vote winner either way. Uh, in some ways, that's why the coalition um, can get away with it. Uh, <laughs> the, because the Labor Party agrees with them on so much, they're reluctant to, to raise it as an, an election issue, and so we're going to have to try and make it more of an uh, election issue. Uh, the one difference between the coalition and Labor that... Um, is giving hope to some of the, the refugee communities is Labor's policy on uh, permanent visas. Uh, so that would make a difference to tens of thousands of uh, refugees in the community who are on temporary visas or bridging visas, unable to uh, get family reunion, you know, have permanent uncertainty. Um, but the... <coughs> the yeah, well, well, I start with the election... Um, there are, I think if, if Labor was to win, which the polls suggest is likely, or they could still stuff it up, um, that would happen. There are four Labor MPs who've now called for the release of the Medivac refugees from the, the Park Hotel. I think we would get that. But what we wouldn't get is an ending of offshore processing, an ending of boat turnbacks. Labor is still uh, sadly committed to that. And so breaking the Labor Party from those uh, policies remains an important goal of the uh, the refugee movement. Um, I guess I add there's the the, the, um, the Palm Sunday uh, big rally for refugees, which will be on the 19th of April this year, will be in the lead up to the election, and that will be important uh, in trying to you know force refugee issues onto the election. I mean, we've seen with the Djokovic case, as people find out about the um, what's been done to refugees, and, you know, people are astounded. They say, how could this happen for nine years? And I don't know. Um, and they're outraged, and it is because the two major parties have agreed on so much. There's been so little um, 
media coverage of it. Yeah, there's there's certainly yeah. an appetite for change in the public, and it's it's a shame that neither of the the parties have really hopped on and announced really any changes to the system. Um, and what are some ways we can support the Refugee Action Collective and the movement moving forwards to free all of these detained men? Um, anybody who's around this morning uh, can come down to Burang Ma uh, at the tennis. We've got a big banner saying stop torturing refugees, free them now, um, <clears throat> just as a... Uh, because of the, the Djokovic case has drawn attention to um, what is happening to the refugees in the um, Park Hotel. Uh, you know, Djokovic has, has lost the ability to play tennis. Their lives are being destroyed. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, we will have a forum on uh, January 31st about the uh, godlike powers that the Minister of Immigration has and how these are used for cruel and arbitrary uh, detention. Uh, we'll have Adnan, who's one of the refugees in the Park Hotel, speaking. Uh, Maria Callahan is a, a law, um, human rights uh, lawyer. And uh, Joey, who's one of the 501 detainees in, in MITRE, so people should um, come along and hear that. And otherwise, people can get involved every Monday night. If you go to RACBIC or Refugee Action Collective on Facebook, uh, we advertise all of our meetings there or on our website. Um, and you can find the Zoom link, because uh, <clears throat> for the, the next meeting is currently by Zoom. I think after that, we might be back in the Kathleen Syme Library if they're open. But I'd encourage everyone to get involved. Uh, the more people we have involved, the more things that we can do. The, the you know the bigger we can build the movement in solidarity with the refugees fight, uh, and hopefully get the remaining 33 out of the Park Hotel sooner rather than later. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We'll definitely pop uh, the link to the Refugee Action Collective Facebook group in our show notes, um, and enjoy the rest of your day. That was Chris Breens there from the Refugee Action Collective, Victoria. Um, you're on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Up next, we're going to be playing a song by a refugee activist. Her name is Dawn Barrington. Um, she's based in Perth. And this song is entitled, He's My Brother. Take a look. gentle and kind from another land he left far behind he's got a story so hard to hear of pain and sorrow day you To his prayers 
asking for freedom and to hold his mom again eight years stolen of his precious life did you know he was just a young boy when he said goodbye to family I call on your people common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. That song was He's My Brother by refugee activist Dawn Barrington. You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Up next, protests over rising fuel prices and inequality in Kazakhstan earlier this month escalated into violence as the movement sparked a harsh crackdown from the Kazakh government. 
President Torkayev ordered troops to fire without warning before invoking a clause in the regional treaty, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, to summon troops from Russia and neighbouring countries for assistance. The protests have since dwindled, but the ABC reports that the death toll is at least 164, with more than 5,800 people detained. Here to unpack the recent events in Kazakhstan, we are joined by Dr. Kirill Nurjanov from the Australian National University. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Jacob. It's a pleasure to have you on. Now, there's been a couple of different protests, um, sorry, different accounts of the protest. Uh, President Toykayev has said that they were hijacked by terrorists. Many media outlets are reporting it's a broader movement for political liberalisation. What do we know about the protests and what were some of the key causes? Well, uh, both viewpoints are actually correct because uh, what happened in Kazakhstan between the uh, 2nd of January and the 11th of January this year uh, showed traits of both uh, mass protests and uh, some kind of grand conspiracy to destabilize the regime and perhaps uh, effect a coup d'etat. So um, uh, what we do know now, and these are early days, the investigation is still uh, progressing into uh, what uh, actually happened, is that uh, the trigger, as you said, was... uh, uh, the uh, sudden doubling of uh, petrol prices uh, announced on the 1st of January, which uh, brought some people in the streets in uh, the west of Kazakhstan, and then it sort of escalated, uh, and uh, the crisis unfolded uh, with uh, gruesome ferocity in the largest city of Kazakhstan, Almaty, uh, where um, uh, peaceful protests and uh, Uh, picket lines demanding uh, the diminution of prices and uh, some kind of restoration of social justice were quickly eclipsed uh, by wholesale violence, marauding and uh, uh, attacks on police precincts and uh, military garrisons uh, by well-armed rioters. And we still don't know who those rioters were. Uh, Again, uh, if you listen to President Tokayev and his administration, the story uh, reads like like uh, elements within the Kazakhstani uh, security establishment tried to pull uh, off something akin to a coup d'etat. Mm, so some of the causes um, that they, they said was that it was potentially a movement towards addressing inequality. Do you think there'll be any movement in Parliament um, towards addressing this or, or any kind of democratisation following these protests? Mm. Well, uh, on the 11th of uh, January, Tokayev faced the um, low house of the parliament, the Majlis in Kazakhstan, where he unfolded a program of reforms and uh, wholesale change. Uh, it uh, said absolutely nothing, actually, about a cardinal reform of the political system. Uh, it was a very populist kind of statement, saying that, uh, uh, look, what the uh, new government, and the government, of course, was sent uh, into retirement, and uh, Tokayev announced a, a brand new cabinet, and he said that the new cabinet will uh, uh, do a couple of things. Uh, One, it will effectively expropriate uh, the uh, possessions, uh, the accounts, the companies uh, belonging to the uh, clan of uh, the former president, Sultan Nazarbayev, uh, and uh, some of the money will be redistributed among the poor in Kazakhstan, an extremely populist move and, of course, a one-off kind of uh, uh, payment 
sent to the dispossessed in Kazakhstan uh, to put a blanket on further protests. And the second point that he made uh, was that uh, um, my top priority now is to assume full control over the security services. Uh, no more nonsense about uh, like uh, with the previous situation where uh, some of the services continue to be under the control of Nazarbayev, not Tokayev. And now this coordinated machine of state uh, security will uh, make absolutely sure that the riots, pillage, and uh, uh, looting that, that we saw in Almaty will ever happen again. So unfortunately, there is no sign that uh, the... Uh, uh, bloodshed and violence of early January will compel the government of Kazakhstan to embark on any meaningful reform anytime soon. Mm, so it sounds like there's been yeah, some mixed responses, and unfortunately it doesn't sound like uh, there's going to be a whole lot of change, but President Tokayev only recently came to power in, um, in 2019 following his predecessor, uh, mm-hmm. Narzarbayev, um, who you mentioned before. Um, now, President Nazarbayev ruled the country for three decades. So how has the protest affected the new president, Toykayev's governance of the country? Uh, well, uh, for me, it's becoming quite clear now that indeed, if we are to discover the roots of the protest, it, we have to look at this duality of power. Uh, as you said, Tokayev became the president of the country in 2019. Uh, he was duly elected. Uh, but, of course, it all happened in the wake of uh, Nazarbayev's resignation, who uh, retained uh, a lot of uh, authority, both formal and informal. And, of course, uh, he is constitutionally known as the father of the nation, the Elbasi of Kazakhstan. And uh, the situation was uh, not very good for governance because nobody knew who called all the shots. Sometimes it was Nazarbayev, sometimes it was Tokayev. And uh, something must have happened in uh, late December uh, 2021, which uh, brought the crisis, this uh, tussle for power between the uh, two ruling clans in Kazakhstan to the fore. Uh, we still don't know what uh, that uh, something might have been, but uh, my hunch is uh, that uh, Nazarbayev's health deteriorated and uh, uh, elements of his uh, clique, of his grand clan, really um, panicked and uh, decided that in order to ensure our survival uh, in the new circumstances with Tokayev becoming uh, an uh, unchallenged leader, we must do something to, um, well, something dramatic. Uh, so that's, um, uh, you're quite correct saying uh, that uh, over the past uh, three decades, uh, the progress of Kazakhstan was associated with the name of Nur-Sultan Nazarbayev. And to cut a long story short, uh, what uh, Kazakhstan became during those uh, 30 years is a moderately affluent country. It's uh, miles ahead of uh, any other nation in Central Asia. It's a wealthy country. But that wealth is concentrated in the hands of uh, Nazarbayev's uh, immediate family and among his cronies. And uh, what is going to happen now, we know this for sure, is that some redistribution of that national wealth uh, clustered around oil and gas companies uh, um, uh, uh, will take place. And uh, perhaps uh, the people of Kazakhstan will benefit from this trickle-down effect. Mm, well, I'm, I'm hoping that they, they will benefit um, from the, the trickle-down effect. But from an outsider perspective, it's, it's quite an interesting power play. Like, it's a very foreign concept to have a leader in power for three decades here in Australia. I mean, we change leaders every few years, so that's, that's something um, unique for us. But uh, Kazakhstan is a, a former Soviet state. 
um, as you would know, with a large Russian-speaking population. So we know that um, President Putin had some involvement in the quelling of the protests. What do you think the response says about Russia's influence in Kazakhstan? Uh, well, actually, um, uh, Putin was very circumspect in describing the mission of the uh, Russian troops and uh, beyond that, the mission of the Collective Security Treaty Organization troops deployed in uh, Kazakhstan on the 5th of January. Uh, he said that we are not there to quell the protests. Uh, protests, uh, peaceful protests, legitimate protests are entirely the matter for the uh, Kazakhstani people, and we respect them for that. Uh, the mission uh, for the Russian and the CSTO troops on the ground was, quote-unquote, uh, to fight terrorists. Uh, precisely those groups of well-armed and presumably coordinated uh, groups of people who did not brandish slogans, Nazarbayev down, down with Nazarbayev and uh, let's have some freedom, uh, but people who wanted to destroy the infrastructure of power, who overran military arsenals and wrought havoc in the streets. So those were the only targets of the Russian military uh, contingents. But uh, you are actually quite uh, correct when you say that uh, the Russian question looms large in Kazakhstan. At the time of independence 30 years ago, uh, the, the, uh, population, the eponymous population of Kazakhstan, ethnic Kazakhs, constituted barely 50 percent, uh, half of the population. The rest were Russians or Ukrainians and other Russian speakers. Uh, today it's a bit more... Uh, it's, it's different. Uh, ethnic Kazakhs and Kazakh speakers constitute an absolute majority of the population, but uh, Russian minorities are uh, quite important. And uh, in uh, the city of Almaty, for example, it's, uh, Almaty pretty much continues to be a Russophonic city. So thus, uh, it was um, one of the considerations behind uh, Putin's decision to send in uh, Russian troops uh, uh, to uh, safeguard the, uh, the well-being of that Russian-speaking population. It's an official position of the Russian state, has been in every policy document since the early notice, that uh, the well-being of uh, compatriots abroad, Russian speakers abroad, is a matter of national security uh, concern to uh, Russia. So thus, uh, uh, Putin uh, scored major brownie points, uh, both among Russian speakers in Kazakhstan and Russians themselves, that uh, Mother Russia never leaves its uh, sons and daughters in trouble uh, wherever they are. So thus, uh, Putin's popularity definitely received a boost uh, both in the eyes of uh, Russians in Russia and Russians in Kazakhstan in the wake of this uh, week-long deployment of Russian troops on the ground. Mm, so it, it sounds like um, Russia is gaining some kind of influence then if there's some brownie points being gained. And I, I guess if the official interpretation was we're not intervening um, in democratic protests, we're just quelling the, the terrorism, then um, I'm sure that would be uh, received very well. Um, yep. And as we know, the US and China also have an interest in Kazakhstan. Uh, Kazakhstan shares a border with West China. Do you think the recent unrest will have any influence on Kazakhstan's relationship with, um, with other international powers? 
Right. Uh, as far as China goes, uh, I don't think there'll be any change. Uh, the Chinese leadership was very quick to say that uh, we support the government of uh, Kassim Jomar Tokayev, and uh, he has our blessing to deal with uh, terrorists and hoodlums uh, uh, with the full ferocity of um, uh, his legitimate authority, no problem at all. Uh, whereas uh, the American reaction was quite interesting. In indeed, it is the American, uh, the Western mainstream media side of the story, is that whatever happened in Kazakhstan was uh, a large grassroots uh, pro-democracy movement. Uh, it may have started as such, but uh, uh, after the 5th of January, the people in the streets uh, uh, were predominantly looters and marauders on the one hand, and indeed these uh, yet unknown uh, groups of well-organized people armed to the teeth uh, who tried to overrun government facilities. On the other hand, there were no really uh, substantial numbers of uh, uh, pro-democracy uh, protesters uh, here there, and everywhere. So thus, when the United States and its allies in the West uh, came out very strongly criticizing Tokayev, for the imposition of the martial law and for his uh, order to uh, shoot on uh, looters and marauders um, uh, without warning. Uh, this did not go down well with the Kazakh public at all, because uh, I just read the accounts of the social media in Kazakhstan, and uh, there is very little sympathy anyway in Kazakhstan towards the so-called um, uh, protesters, and uh, eyebrows were raised uh, uh, on the ground against the West, well, the, the, don't these uh, lily-livered Westerners understand that what we are dealing here is, uh, is a, a case of emergency and uh, it's a matter of life and death, and uh, actually where we support Tokayev, we don't really have much sympathy towards the so-called protesters. That's per the prevalent opinion on the ground. So the um, uh, long and short of this is that in the wake of the crisis, uh, the stock of Russia as a partner of Kazakhstan is certainly going to skyrocket. Uh, relations between Kazakhstan and China are going to be on a steady keel, uh, whereas uh, the West uh, will recede in uh, importance as a, a good interlocutor and partner for Kazakhstan. That's the uh, geopolitical landscape uh, <laughs> I'm uh, confidently predicting. Mm, well, it's, it's certainly a very conventional response uh, from the West to frame it as a, a pro-democracy uh, movement, because I'm sure that would obviously benefit them. Um, well, Dr. Uh, Nurjanov, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Really fascinating hearing your insights into this. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR yeah. today. My pleasure, Jacob. Okay, so that was Dr. Kirill Nurjanov, um, who is a professor at the Australian National University, speaking on the recent situation in Kazakhstan. Um, we're going to jump to a song now. This one is called Julie O by Mark Summer, Slava Grigorian and Sharon Grigorian, who are both um, Australian Kazakh musicians.
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR 855 AM on the dial, or maybe you're listening online, 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. The time is 8.25, and that song that we just heard was called Julie O by Mark Summer and Slava and Sharon Gregorian, who are quite a well-known um, Kazakh-Australian duet on cello and guitar. Um, and we've just also heard a great interview with Dr. Kirill Nurjanov, um, who is speaking about the recent protests in Kazakhstan and what they mean for international and regional relations. So we're going to finish up now with a few headlines of what's been going on in the news over the past week. Um, so as some of you may have heard, there was a volcanic eruption in Tonga, which caused a magnitude 4.9 earthquake and about a one-meter-high tsunami in Tonga. So this um, was the result of a volcanic eruption on between the two landmasses of Hanga Tonga and Hanga Haiapai, um, and that volcano is about 65 kilometers away from the capital of Tonga. Um, now, our thoughts are with the people of Tonga. Um, as we know, it's, it's a low-lying island nation, um, so any kind of flooding will have major impacts on people's infrastructure um, and obviously their ability to get food and, and major supplies. And from what the ABC reports as well, the internet has actually been cut off in Tonga too because it comes from an underwater cable from Fiji. Um, so uh, Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand has offered initial financial assistance of about $472,000 with potential to add more. Scott Morrison has also promised, uh, committed to supplies of help um, and personnel. So our thoughts are with the people of Tonga, um, and we'll be keeping you updated on that situation as it unfolds. Um, in other news, uh, as we have discussed earlier today, Novak Djokovic has had his visa cancelled for a second time um, after the court uh, overruled his request um, to have it reinstated. So um, the the Office of Immigration said that Novak's presence in Australia might risk civil unrest by stoking anti-vaccination sentiment, um, and this removes any chance of him competing in the Australian Open to win a 21st Grand Slam. Now, Serbia's president has said Novak Djokovic has been harassed, but not humiliated, and he called the treatment of Djokovic scandalous as the world number one's home country um, reacted rightfully so quite furiously to his deportation. Um, now, I think Chris Breen summed this situation up quite well earlier on in that this is probably on the Morrison government for, for dragging Djokovic all the way from Serbia only to have him his visa cancelled. Um, I feel like the no dickhead policy 
should certainly have been transparent and upfront uh, from the start. In other news, um, Taliban forces in Afghanistan have fired pepper spray at a group of women protesting um, for work and education. Now, since seizing control of the country in August last year, the Taliban have closed down public universities and many secondary schools are still shut. About 20 women gathered in front of uh, Kabul University on Sunday, chanting equality and justice. Um, and it's it's really unfortunate that um, they've been met with a, a harsh crackdown from the Taliban. Now, the country is also on the brink of total humanitarian collapse, according to the UN, with most Afghans living on less than $2 a day as foreign bodies have freezed donating funds after the takeover of the Taliban. Um, and according to Al Jazeera, about 80% of the, the Afghan economy was uplifted by foreign funds. So our thoughts are with um, the Afghan people right now. It's it's not a pretty situation, um, and we really hope that there can be some resolution out of all this. Well, that brings us to the end of our show today. Thank you so much for tuning in um, to 3CR Monday Brekkie. My name's Jacob, and we will catch you next week. Stay tuned for Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.